Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Okay, so for today's Dharma talk, um, I thought I would talk a little bit about Joko's way of practicing Zen. So in the last couple talks I've done, we started with a very practical approach to Zen training, sitting, walking, sessions, what we're doing, why we do it, and what we get out of it. And then last week, I talked a little bit about uh, what I left out of the first talk, which was that it's not about you at all, <laughs> even though that's how we talked about it the whole time in the first talk. And then this time, I thought I would uh, bring in Joko's voice. So as you may or may not know, uh, Appamata is a Zen practice center in Joko Beck's lineage, and uh, we bring her psychologically minded kind of contemporary approach to Zen practice here. So it has a little bit of a different flavor. Um, starting with how even our chants and practice principles are done. And I'll start with a little quote from Joko that the point of Zen practice is to be who we are. The point of Zen practice is be who we are. Um, but who we are is often mm, a little confused by our own small little monkey minds and what we think we're doing and what we're up to. Uh, and just as the Buddha taught in the four practice principles that uh, you know, life is comprised of dukkha or suffering, uh, that's where we begin is we notice the ways in which we suffer and the ways in which we make others suffer. But Joko puts it in a different way. In the four practice principles as we recite them here, it begins caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Right? So there's already a little definition there. <clears throat> The self-centered dream, only suffering. The second line is holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Those are direct pointing to how you're gonna learn in this model. You're gonna learn by being embedded in your life, not by going off to some monastery or some different way of practice or doing koan study. <clears throat> and then what's the release? What's the final point? Being just this moment, compassion's way. <clears throat> so Joko was trained in the traditional um, Zen method of koan study. So koan meaning uh, a public case or public statement some written trans, transmitted record of a meeting between a student and a teacher where something opened, something moved. And for whatever reason, the people around them 
uh, thought it was worth writing down and passing along as a teaching. And so koan study in traditional Zen centers, you know, these are what we think of in modern, you know, uh, kind of contemporary United States pop culture as uh, Zen riddles, right? What's the sound of one hand clapping? Yeah, that's an example, but they, most of them aren't uh, riddles sounding like that. Most of them are just little exchanges between students and teachers where something opened. And while she completed that course of study herself, and it's still used in many practice centers, she was concerned about what it didn't do, right? That it didn't, um, it didn't engage people's core conditioning well enough about their habitual responses and how they were meeting their lives. And so she, with her students, she started reorienting this practice towards um, their life. But in any case, the, the practice here, just like in any other Zen practice center, any other Buddhist center, is rooted in Zazen, is rooted in seated meditation. Uh, I always like to remind people that's 90% of what we do here, right? If you look at the Sunday morning program, which is, you know, two and a half hours long, two hours of it is meditation. There's just a little bit of talking. And that, we, we use our time with uh, what we think is most important. So the, the root is in zazen, in sitting, in paying attention, in training our mind and our bodies to come back to the present moment over and over again. Uh, Njoko used to say, seeing what's up. I'm just seeing what's up. Seeing what's going on now. <clears throat> As she would say, meditation is not about some state, but about the meditator. So that's what we do with our time here as our basic practice, coming back to the present moment. Now read from Joko again. This is from um, Nothing Special, which was the second book composed of her spoken talks. Sitting is not about finding a happy, blissful state. The, the states may occur in sitting when we've really experienced our pain over and over again, so that finally there's just letting go. That surrender and opening into something fresh and new is the consequence of experiencing pain, not a consequence of finding a place where we can shut the pain out. I mean, that's quintessentially Joko right there. <clears throat> it's about experiencing what is. It's not about shutting things out. So one of our basic instructions here is to bring it all in, to turn towards whatever is arising right now. Good, bad, painful, joyful, indifferent, your job is not to judge it and, and decide, I need to find the blissful state. Your job is to say, okay, I guess this is what's happening now. I used to tell people that, you know, as a, as a basic instruction, when you find you're jealous, 
your practices. Hello, Jealousy. How are you today? When you find your anger, angry, your practices. Hello, anger. Nice to see you again. How are you today? <laughs> right? Our job is just to remain open and awake and greet whatever comes in. Suzuki Roshi would say, you know, you open, when you sit down figuratively in your zendo, do you open the front door and you open the back door and you allow whatever's going to come in to come in. Just don't serve it tea. <laughs> so don't start dancing with it. Don't start fantasizing with it. Don't debate it. Just, hello. Who's coming in next? So Joko's way is about bringing um, everything into this circle, everything that's happening. <clears throat> but she had a very basic instruction once some people had some foundation about um, exercising that concentration muscle and being able to come back to the present moment. She was very fond of a particular practice that helped us helps us wake up to what we're actually doing. And that's one of her students' uh, famous books that we, we use here, Waking Up to What You Do, right? So if you're aware, what do you do with that? Well, our instruction is, why don't you start looking at how you're actually meeting your life? Wake up to what you do. <clears throat> And her instruction was thought labeling. So what that means is to, when you notice you're sitting, and when you notice you had a thought, you put a, just a small one or two word little label on it. Just allow that witnessing presence, that observing mind, to put a little label on the thought, like, oh, planning, remembering working on a problem. Just a little label. <clears throat> Here's Joko. When we label a thought, we step back from it. We remove our identification. There's a world of difference in saying, she's impossible, and have and, having the thought that she's impossible. Do you see the difference? One is identified with it. One believes it. She is impossible. One is the witnessing presence saying, oh, their small mind thinking that she's impossible again. <clears throat> Same thought. Different way of being with it. Yes. One thing I see about that is she is impossible as a fact. And then having the thought she gives possibility, opens possibility. Right, right. The more we observe and understand small mind, the less we'll be caught by it. So this is what one of the, the byproducts of this instruction. 
And for many years, our practice is just about strengthening this observer. The more we observe our thoughts and actions, the more our chief feature will tend to fade. Let me uh, explain that. She's been talking in this chapter about our teach chief feature, which uh, in this particular chapter she's using to refer to your, your go-to strategy. What do you do under pressure? Do you lash out? Do you drink? Do you hide? Right? So that chief feature, she's just talking about our habitual response, our personal habitual response. The more we observe our thoughts and actions, the more our chief feature will tend to fade. The more it fades, the more we are willing to experience the fear that created it in the first place. For many years, practice is about strengthening the observer. Eventually, we're willing to do what comes up next without resistance, and the observer fades. We don't need the observer anymore. We can be life itself. When that process is complete, one is fully realized, a Buddha. Though I haven't met anyone for whom this process is complete. <laughs> She's always quick to point out there's no end to this process. Here's Joko again. What we get out of practice is being more awake, being more alive, knowing our own mischievous tendencies so well that we don't need to visit them on others. <laughs> so this thought labeling, each of us is gonna have our particular habituated response. Each of us is gonna have our story, um, our triggers, our belief systems about why we think it's happening, why we think it's happening to us, and what we should be doing about it. Each time you label that thought, you're building a little inventory of your go-tos until you get so good at seeing them, you're not fooled by them. There's this quote by Suzuki Roshi that I love. I had on my wall it worked for years, and now I probably won't get it right, but it was something to the effect that when we're fooled by others, it's not so bad, really. But when we're fooled by ourselves, it can be fatal. <laughs> so we sit down, we thought label, we learn to be like a mirror, just reflecting what we see. Oh, having the thought she's horrible. That's what I'm seeing right now, having the thought that she's horrible. The mirror makes no judgment. Whenever we judge, we've added another thought that needs to be labeled. Thinking I shouldn't think she's horrible. <laughs> Thinking a good student wouldn't think she's horrible. Right? <clears throat> There's no end to this process. 
Barry Majid likes to give beginners uh, practice instruction. Let me, so Barry Majid is another one of Joko's Dharma heirs. He runs the Ordinary Mind Zendo in New York City, and he's also a uh, uh, psychotherapist, longtime psychotherapist. So Barry likes to give beginning practice instruction by saying, sitting is like sitting down and facing a mirror. Your face automatically appears. There's no avoiding it. You can't do it right. You can't do it wrong. If you sit down and shut up, your face, you, your habituated responses will appear. Here's Joko again. There's only one way out of this closed loop and to see ourselves clearly. We have to step outside the little mind and observe it. The little mind. So it's a little tricky. It's a little catch-22. <clears throat> right? Here we are trying to use the mind to get out of the uh, patterns of the mind. We can't use our little mind to correct the little mind. It's a formidable problem. The very thing we're investigating is also our means or tool for investigating it. The distortion and how we think distorts our effort to correct the distortion. But again, the more we sit, the more we label these thoughts, the better we get at seeing them, the quicker we get at noticing them, the less we're going to be caught by them. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Ryushin Paul Holler is, awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. <laughs> awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. So a crucible, right? A crucible used in a furnace or in a smelting process. Something where everything gets broken down. Everything gets melted, reduced to its fundamental properties or metals. <clears throat> Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. Alchemy is a bit like magic, right? Turning the dross into gold, right? Mythological, maybe. <clears throat> but that's where the magic happens. Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. The interesting thing is, what is the magic? What's happening? I used to like to tell people that the magic of Zen practice is that it can it creates something out of thin air that wasn't there before. 
a choice. <laughs> if you're just reacting, if you're just acting out your habitual response, you know, stimulus response, there's no choice there, right? She's horrible. No choice. Just the fact, like Joan was saying. Joko again, page 43. As we sit, as our knowledge of ourselves and our lives increases, we get a choice about what we're going to do. We get to choose whether to sacrifice another person. <laughs> so this is the magic of practice. It magically produces a new thing out of thin air choices. Suddenly when the observer is engaged and the witnessing presence is active and you see clearly your habitual reactions, you now have a choice on how to proceed. One that with normal reactivity didn't exist before. An opportunity to choose was created. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. We don't need to seek out suffering. There's plenty of it to go around, or it'll come. <clears throat> Our responses to it, though, are enlightening. They're a chance for insight. In one of the chapters in her book, she talks about Sisyphus, the Greek, I think it's Greek, uh, mythological legend of the man who's condemned, I guess, punished to roll a boulder up a mountain, only to watch it roll back down every time he's so close to getting it to the top. And the, the point she makes is that Sisyphus's hell isn't created by pushing a rock up the hill and watching it roll back down. His hell is created by wanting his life to be different than it is. <clears throat> so in each moment we're awake, we create this magical opportunity to choose. And that choice will create an outcome, a new life as it is in the next moment. That's your only teacher. So we, we create our next teacher in the next moment. Page seven, whatever choice we make, the outcome will provide us with a lesson. If we're attentive and aware, and we learn what we need to do next. In this sense, there's no wrong decision. So this is another one of um, Joko's way of bringing 
practice to us in our modern lives is using the life as it is, as our only teacher, of turning our awareness towards how we're meeting our lives and watching our habitual response to it, seeing what's up. Oh, that's what I think of that. She's so horrible. Having the thought that she's so horrible. We don't need koans. Joko was fond of asking students in practice discussion, how is your life koan going? How was that puzzle and riddle? How are you meeting it? So we learn to sit, we learn to be more aware, to concentrate the mind, and then we start categorizing this monkey mind with our thought labels, learning our own habitual stories. At the same time, stepping back from it every time, having the thought that Strengthening that witnessing presence, learning to rest in the observer, not in the observed. And this brings us to Joko's next lesson, closer to our core beliefs. Joko liked to talk a lot about core beliefs. These are belief systems normally created when we're very young or maybe in traumatic events, stories that we've taken on into our core ego. I'll never be good enough for someone to love me. Or, I don't need anyone. I can do this myself. <laughs> and often our little upset, uh, upsets in life, when we catch ourselves upset with life, with resisting it, this is the mindfulness bell. This is the warning sign. As Peg likes to say, this is the construction zone, the practice construction zone. Set up your little cones, rope it off so no one gets hurt. We're working here. Right? What's going on with me? I do not like this at all. I'm completely resisting this. This is the mindfulness bell. Oh, there's a, there's a practice opportunity here that tells us there's a belief here, a belief system that we can investigate to see how we're resisting life as it is. What's the story we're telling ourselves over and over again? It's, it's making us resist life as it is. It's this resistance that's the dukkha, it's the suffering, 
Joko's definition of joy, I'm sure most of you heard this, <clears throat> Joko's definition of joy is, joy is what's happening now, minus our opinions of it. <laughs> joy is what's happening now, minus our opinions of it. So she would say everything is joy. Yes. Joy is the fundamental ground of the present moment. Here's another one about joy from Joko. Joy is being willing for things to be as they are. And Joko didn't make this stuff up. She just had a way of uh, presenting it you know, to her American neighbors in a very kind of a plain voice, <clears throat> very direct and fierce. But she didn't make it up. This is uh, Bodhisattva's vow, Tori Zenji. It's right here in our chant book, page nine. It starts, when I, a student of the way, look at the real form of the universe, all is the never failing manifestation of the mysterious truth of the awakened life. In any moment, I'm sorry, in any event, in any moment, and in any place, none can be other than the, than the marvelous revelation of its glorious light. Let's skip down. Who can be ungrateful or not respectful, even to senseless things, not to speak of humans, <laughs> even though they may be fools, be warm and compassionate toward them. If by any chance they should turn against us, become sworn enemies and persecute us, we should sincerely bow down with humble language and the reverent understanding that they are the merciful messengers of the awakened one who uses devices to emancipate us from blind tendencies produced and accumulated upon ourselves by our, by our own egoistic, egoistic delusion and attachment through countless cycles of space and time. even though they may be fools, I'm sorry, if by chance they should turn against us, we should bow down in the understanding that they're the merciful messengers of the awakened one who use devices to emancipate us from blind tendencies. It's the same thing, right? Those people that are pissing you off are your teachers. If you don't use it that way, you're turning a perfectly good practice opportunity into an ordinary moment, right? The funny thing is, is that, you know, um, while it doesn't look this way, the upset always comes from inside ourselves. 
we often think that it comes from something or someone outside of us who's doing something to us. But the upset comes from our opinions and reactions to it. What we think about it, the story about it, the core belief system. And this is, um, this is why Zazen is such a great practice is because you remove almost all the external input. There's no one doing it to you anymore, but yet you're still pissed, right? <laughs> yet you're still angry or upset or dreaming or longing or, you know, whatever the day is. <clears throat> this is that number of player zero I was talking about last time. It's like setting the video game to number of player zero and let it play itself. It still races around, even though there's no one in there poking you anymore. <clears throat> so you learn faster. You start to realize, oh, it must be me. <laughs> so that's the situation. The orientation towards life as it is. The practice of thought labeling investigation of core beliefs and then finally kind of underlaying it all is the salve that soothes it which is Mahayana practice the Bodhisattva vow the antidote to the self-centered dream Quit thinking about yourself. Start thinking about how other people awaken. Shoko says, practice moves from what she calls the first viewpoint to the second viewpoint. The first viewpoint is the self-centered dream, self-concern. I need to figure this out. Am I doing it right? I don't think I'm sitting right. Everybody else has got this more than I do. Maybe if I just start doing it this way, I should talk to my teacher about how the self-concern, which is normal, natural, and where we all live. <clears throat> the second viewpoint, the second is creating harmony and growth for everyone. It's a different orienting function. How do we awaken together? We're included in this growth, but we're not at the center of it. This is the Mahayana, the great vehicle, the Bodhisattva bow. Even in the way they're rented here at Apamata, um, when we say it three times, the Bodhisattva bow, Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. It's not, I'm stuck. I vow to get out of it. Right? It's not a, a self-centered orientation. It's reorning us towards the whole, towards everyone. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. And we chant it three times. But each of the times, the wording changes. Now the second time around, 
beings are numberless. We vow to free them. We're moving from I to we. The third time, beings are numberless. This vow frees them all. There's no I or we anymore. Just the process of freeing. So pay close attention to what you're practicing, how you're doing it. Talk to your spiritual friends and your teachers. The last quote I'll leave you from Joko. We get good at what we practice. We get good at what we practice. May you practice freedom for yourself and others. Thank you. Um, didn't leave much time, but I think we could spare five minutes if there's any questions or comments before we wrap up. Anybody have any anything they'd like to ask or reflect on? Anne. So my understanding at this moment after listening to you and, and all before is that awareness and thinking are not the same. Right. Being aware and having thoughts are not the same thing. Correct. Essentially different. Oh, Kim would like to. Go ahead, Kim. Oh, so one of many things that have been confusing me, you talked about joy as being like the, the basis of all of this, living in joy. And why, why do you think we, um, some aim toward enlightenment where they wouldn't be reborn? Like it would seem that if life is so great, we'd want to be reborn over and over and over again, and we wouldn't aim toward ending that cycle. And that's been a confusing thing for me. My impulse is to say I have no idea and not offer an answer. Okay, thank you. But I, I have no problem spouting my opinion without any, any uh, thought. <laughs> so I'll do it anyway. You know, um, it seems like all the major religions are about union and, and returning to the whole, kind of the undifferentiated. So to me, it kind of seems like just another manifestation of that to get out of the, the cycle of birth and redeath and of being human and just to rejoin the undifferentiated. Somehow, I, I'm guessing it's rooted there, but like I said, I don't know. Okay, thank you.
Yeah, we have Rosemary next. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was um, glad that you brought up the second view because um, I always think of, yes, this um, chance life as it is, but the um, um, the idea of or the, the reality of, of Joko on the beach when she met these two people fighting. And, uh, as I would think out of compassion and, and kindness for them, uh, she separated them and said, stop. So um, there's also that um, idea of um, stepping in um, to help um, when you see something that um, could be improved by your intervention, I guess. Thank you. Yeah, it seems like you're in that business, aren't you, Rosemary? Well, I, I guess. Well, um, professionally, yeah, it's it's easier than um, personally, interpersonally. But yes, I am. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the talk. Okay, then. Why don't we wrap up there? Thank you, everyone.